This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two stupendous human beings, Paul Jaceley. Hello. And Tia Vasilio. I legit thought you were going to call us stupid human beings. <laughs> I mean, no, I would never do that. I would never do that. You, you guys be. are too fantastic. <laughs> I could never insult you publicly like that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't be really that wrong, at least sometimes. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know what? I'm I'm super excited. I'm back. You know, it's been so long. We had a br- our break episodes, like we were on our mini-sode summer break, but I was off the week before that, and I was off last week, so now it's like, it's been way too long since I sat down to do a show, and boy, oh boy, I just want to say that wedding planning will kill you, <laughs> and that's where I'm at right now. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Let me ask the question that I'm supposed to ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Paul. Uh, I've been good, Mike. I, uh, as I've always said every time I'm on the show, I'm perpetually catching up on comics. I'm always behind. Uh, but it's nice to actually have a weekend uh, free for the most part so I can sit down and enjoy this hobby. Well, at least I tell myself it's a hobby, not a chore, you know, mm-hmm. reading comics. Um, uh, speaking of putting off comics and uh, waiting to read them, I did finally sit down to read my copy of Paper Girls number 30. It had been sitting on the kitchen table you know, just waiting for me to have the time and the mental aptitude and uh, prepared emotional uh, fitness to read it. And right. um, I, I obviously don't want to give any spoilers away. I know this is a book a lot of people read in trade, but I will say that this is the absolute perfect ending to this book. You know, as this series is going on, I kept asking myself how exactly are Brian K. Vaughn and um, um, Cliff Chang and Matt Wilson going to wrap up this incredible, mind-blowing, mind-bending time travel story, and they mm-hmm. do it in the only possible satisfying way. And it's it's interesting because, you know, as I, reading the book month to month, more or less, as it was coming out in issues and kind of being confused by what the big picture was, there was a moment toward the end of issue 29 that kind of reinforced the idea of, like, I actually grew to really love these characters, Whatever confusing time travel stuff was going on, that's less important to me than the actual characters themselves and their relationship to each other. And this final issue just solidified that and was like a great sort of bookend to the whole series. I'm actually really excited to go back and read it from the beginning to get that payoff again with issue 30. That's awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to hear that because I've been putting off reading the rest of that book. <laughs> I think I stopped at like 18 or 19 okay. and I just okay. like, I was kind of waiting for it to end, which is really kind of sad. Yeah. But yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to read that. I'm glad to hear that it ends really well. So that's like more of a drive for me to actually go do that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because, you know, my, my experience with Brian K. Vaughn is kind of limited. I guess I've only really read this and uh, Why the Last Man. I only made it about 30 issues in the saga before tapping out on that. Right. And um, I mean, he, I guess he was involved in Lost, right? I don't really, I never watched that show, but I think it was a similar thing where people were like waiting for this like big finale and like mm-hmm. it being unsatisfying. So... And I, I read Why the Last Man. I couldn't tell you exactly how it ends. I've forgotten completely. But at least with Paper Girls, he nailed this ending. So if that's been a concern of his work, I, I, th- I think you'll be happy with it. Cool. That's uh, really good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> on the other on the other side of things, I did read Batman Last Night on Earth number two. This is, of course, the big reunion between Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo uh, doing a sort of their last Batman story together. And it's a post-apocalyptic story. They're picking up off threads and story details from their epic Batman run a few years ago. Especially the idea that Bruce Wayne had invented a perpetual Batman machine, which essentially every like few decades would create a brand new Bruce Wayne imbued with the memories of the previous one. So Batman okay. would never die. That doesn't sound nearly as bad as what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> right. Where like every couple of decades they kill some kid's parents mm-hmm. and... 
that'd be a little gross. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a little messier, but this is a clean version of that. Good. You get a brand good. new Batman, and this this uh, story opens up with this latest Batman waking up, and basically everything everything's been destroyed. He's basically in Mad Max, um, and he's traveling across this deserted wasteland with uh, uh, the Joker's head like in a lantern. So and that's and the Joker's Comic- head is serving as exactly serving as the commentary, the narrator of the whole story. I mean, the the I guess this elevator pitch what hooked me and why I'm enjoying it is it's Mad Max plus Batman, and that's 100% my kind of comic book. So I'm oh, totally. really enjoying this book. It, it's it's a nice sort of Elseworlds alternate reality kind of take on, on their previous Batman run. It's a lot of fun to see those two back together. For sure. that's that's That sounds fun. Um, you'll have to let me know how it goes yeah, in yeah, the end. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tia, what about you? How have you been? How have comic books been? All that. Um, well, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm still recovering from my trip to San Diego and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like you just need to lay in bed for like one week per every day that you spend there. <laughs> Not quite caught up yet. And, um, I've been really busy with gymnastics. Anyone who follows me on Twitter, I, uh, appreciate your patience. <laughs> So um, I actually have not been as uh, immersed in comics the last couple of weeks as I think some of you have been during our summer break. But I did get Bad Gateway by Simon Hanselman when I was at San Diego. Nice. And uh, so I've been sort of reading that and I just finished it a couple of days ago. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Simon Hanselman. I'm a big fan of Megan Mogg. I put I put it on Mega Hex on our reading list for this year. And um, one of the things that I've always really loved about those books is that even though they're ludicrous and funny and just sort of uh, over the top, they are also very honest, poignant sort of meditations on depression and uh, sort of aimlessness that I think a lot of young adults experience and Mm -hmm. don't really have uh, a framework for dealing with in healthy ways, don't really have a support system for dealing with it in healthy ways. And so, you know, it kind of comes out in just sort of sitting around and being high and watching TV and just doing dumb shit because you just don't really feel like you have anywhere to go. And um, the thing that's different about Bad Gateway is that's all sort of catching up to Meg and Mog at this point, and most mostly Meg. I think Meg is really standing out now as the as the main character, and she's had a sort of falling out with, with Mog. Um, the relationship is kind of rocky right now. Uh, Owl, who's always kind of been the mom friend of the group has left. (laughs) And werewolf Jones, who is like a (laughs) very bad influence. Oh, I love this book for this reason. Like these (laughs) names are just (laughs) werewolf Jones. So works. I know. I know exactly. Right. Uh, he has moved into the house and, uh, it's just it's brought all of the chaos that werewolf Jones is mm-hmm. into their lives and and then some we we get some backstory on Meg and we sort of get a glimpse of of kind of what put her on the path 
that she's on and maybe we understand a little more why she doesn't have any kind of support system. And um, it kind of puts her in this position where she really needs to like look that in the face and figure out how she's going to deal with it. So it's a little bit more serious than the other Megan Mog books. I mean, it still has all the crazy stuff and like Werewolf Jones has his dick out in almost every panel. And it's just, you know, I mean, like, like all of that is still happening, Um, you know, but it's really nice to to see the range that Simon Hanselman is capable of working with in with these characters and in this world that he's created. He is such a good artist and storyteller and and I think that he doesn't get enough credit for being subtle because obviously like a lot of what people lo- love about Megan Mogg is really over the top and I mean it's like a witch and a cat and they like are smoking pot and having sex and like being gross all the time so like that's understandable <laughs> but you know that I, I I spent so much time looking at this set of panels where Mog is sitting on the couch and he's like looking in one direction and then the next panel it's almost exactly the same the only difference is that the little black dots that comprise his pupils are like ever so slightly shifted like Mm. almost imperceptibly but it changes the whole panel and you put those two panels together and it's a story it's like amazing that that he he's like I don't know. I, I I think that it just really speaks to the ability of Simon Hanselman to kind of exercise restraint and, and just kind of sit in a moment and let the nuances of the moment really do a lot of the heavy lifting sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that sounds incredible. I need to read the rest of the mega hex stuff and Mag- megan mog so that i can i can catch up I, I forget that there's like actually a building narrative with those books yeah because i think you can pick them up one off and you'll have a good time but if you've read them all in order it actually pays off pretty well right yeah and especially i think with bad gateway um it it kind of is direct the the direct fallout of um is it one more year or Megan Mog in Amsterdam? I don't remember the order of them now. God, I should have looked that up. Sorry, guys. Um, I can I'll put it in the show notes the the order of the books. But the one the one that directly precedes Bad Gateway, it like narratively there is continuity that you should have read first. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Good to know. Um, How are you, Mike? I'm. You know, I'm okay. I've been busy wedding planning and. Every single thing seems to have been happening for the last six weeks or so. Like, I thought my July was going to be like a nice time off, but it turns out I had something every weekend. And then people just dropped into town. And then it turns out I had to, you know, I had to go to Michigan to do some wedding planning stuff. And so I was traveling and traveling. And I feel like I haven't had a moment to like sit and rest and kind of like not be thinking about one more thing that I have to do. Um, but I have been reading comic books because when I need to escape, I just kind of put my face into a comic book for an hour. And uh, so I've been reading a lot of Dragon Ball Super <laughs> because it's the <laughs> easiest manga to read. And mm-hmm. it is so dumb and perfect. It's exactly what I need sometimes. But I also read a bunch of extra, like other comic books. Uh, I read Glow numbers one through three. This is Teeny Howard, Hannah Templer. 
this book is super cute. It's hilarious. It feels like the natural a natural extension of the TV show. So if you like the Glow TV series, you will love this comic, Paul. I know you were reading this. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. it's a it's a really fun comic book. I feel it in my bones some of the pages just the way that all the characters emote like hannah templar's art really gets you feeling in the dump sometimes in the best way (laughs) yeah it's yeah for as simple and lighthearted as it appears at first glance like it's a very nuanced book and i really like that about it too yeah it's it it does kind of hit you the right way yeah, and it definitely has all the grittiness that makes glow kind of edgy in some mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I haven't seen the new season that just came out this past weekend, but um, I really liked seasons one and two, and I feel like all the ca- characters that are in the comic are captured super well in in the actual um, comic book itself. So, or I should say, all the characters in the show. But yeah, so I read that. That was a lot of fun. I also sat down and read Christopher Sabella's Test Number One and Two. This is art by Jen Hickman, and all I can really say is fucking what. Um, because that's what this book feels like. It's really moving. It's a mo- it's a book that is constantly on the move, and it wants you to overthink it and then underthink it, and then he's going to take a left turn. Um, I am not sure what I got into, but I'm willing to see it to the end because I know that it's a miniseries. So I'm I'm really on board to try this really fucking weird book from Vault. And I mean, Chris, he talked about it when he was on the show, so I was hyped up from that, and I finally sat down and read it and. Man, it's a it's a wild trip. I think issue three came out or is coming out. I haven't read it yet, but one and two were definitely a wild ride. And if worse comes to worse, I know that I can rely on a weird cult-like group of people in a library that are just trying to save their town, because that's kind of at the center of this book. <laughs> um anyways, let's let's talk about comic books that are coming out in the upcoming week, August 14th, 2019, is where comic books are dropping. Paul, what are you excited for this upcoming week? Um, you know, I, I I didn't want to pick a Batman book. I wanted to change, you know, my 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 uh, perception here a little bit. Mm-hmm. When people think what I'm reading is only Batman, but it's a small week for me. And there's a new Batman book coming out, so yeah. it's a uh, Batman Universe number two. This is the um, book that's collecting the Brian Michael Bendis and Nick Darrington uh, with Dave Stewart on colors. Batman stories are a part of that those Walmart 100 page books that Walmart's putting out. I'm sure everyone knows about this, or if not, <laughs> there was that yeah big controversy yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is that uh, Walmart's selling these 100 page comics. It has new stories from uh, like like I said, this Batman story, and then some backup material reprints. And then the question was like, was this stuff ever going to be available for people that don't want to set foot into a Walmart? And then uh, sure enough, DC's publishing the the original stories as a standalone series. That's what this is. I picked up issue one kind of on a whim um, because it's, it's a Batman book, uh, more mm-hmm. or less. And uh, it turns out it's really fun. Like Brian Michael Bendis, I've gone back and forth on the Superman stuff he's been doing for DC. Uh, but I think this is a really interesting take on Batman. It feels very lighthearted and fun. Obviously, Nick Darrington's artwork um, is very different from your typical Batman book. There's a very clean look to it, very simple. He almost has like an Adam West type physique in it. Um Panels kind of remind me of David Mazzuccelli's Batman Year One, but they're not a sort of homage. He's not trying to um, copy that style. It just it, you can tell that's one of his probably biggest influences to draw Batman. So it's a nice mix of that stuff. And the story is very fun. It's like the the first issue introduces the idea that the Riddler is trying to steal a Fabergé egg that was originally owned by Jonah Hex that he passed on to his you know granddaughter Ginny. So Batman has to track down Ginny Hex to find out you know where this Fabergé egg came from. Uh, there's a great scene of like Batman just standing in the middle of a 
like basically a small town in the middle of nowhere, standing in the field, in dressed like Batman, and people are like, "What are you doing? It's the middle of the day. You're just standing in this middle in this like cross section, crosswalk, in the middle of nowhere." It's kind of just a funny moment like that, and then. I guess this second issue, it has the Green Arrow in it, so I think it has a vibe of a sort of Batman team-up book, where it's Brian Michael Bendis being able to play around with fun ideas um, in a sort of lighthearted way, and I, I, I really dig it. Gotcha. That sounds sounds exciting. I mean, curious to know how if there's going to be any printing differences between what was printed at Walmart and what's going to come out in the shops, but... yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sure there's some somebody, some other website out there can do the comparison for us. We don't sure. we don't have to dive into that. Uh, anyways, uh, Tia, what about you? What are you excited for this week? Uh, well, I'm just looking at our notes and loving how on brand all of our what we're excited <laughs> I mean, for titles are. <laughs> yeah, I've been off for a couple weeks. I got to come back strong. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I am excited for uh, the new Boom series, Once in Future, that Kieran Gillen is doing with Dan Mora and Tamara mm-hmm. Bonvillain. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But come on. This is all the things that that Tia likes. So the premise is basically that this Arthurian villain has been brought back to power from, you know, like way back in the day. And and so this monster hunter, this like older woman uh, has like recruits her grandson, who is a museum curator to like help her combat this this monster that's been brought back from the dead and sounds a little insane but all right i'll roll with it (laughs) yeah it's like you know i love mythology i've been complaining about there not being enough older women heroes in comics since like when you know forever um Mm -hmm. museum curator like i (laughs) i just these are all the things kieran's writing it so come on it's all the things that Mm -hmm. i like Gotcha. And for once, I didn't actually read the book before I put it on my. I like actually haven't <laughs> okay. read this yet. So. Oh. oh man, so we're getting like an honest, like a like a full hundred percent take. This is exciting. Yeah. I like it. Um. Well, cool. I, I mean, I'm going to check that book out too. I I was looking at my pull list. I realized I hadn't pulled it on League of Comic Geeks, but I'm definitely grabbing that. Um. I will just say, you know, you guys got to know that I'm going to pull and talk about Powers of X number two or Powers of Ten. Um, that's just the book that's coming out. And God damn it, if I'm not picking it as my pick. Um, this is John Hickman's, you know, insanity. You know, we've had House of X. Now we have Powers of Ten, uh, the number two. Uh, RB Sylvia on art. My notes for this is I don't know, but okay, because quite <laughs> honestly, issue number one was so much of like a mind fuck that I didn't enjoy. Mm-hmm. despite like me really loving what he's doing in House of X, I really did not care for Powers of Ten, with the exception of Nimrod being like this insane villain who's very nice to you until he kills you. Um, and he kills you with kindness in kind of a way. But when I say kill you with kindness, I mean like he's actually crushing your body <laughs> and laughing the entire time, like very kindly. Uh, I did enjoy that. But the the Powers of Ten thing um, is really weird like weirding me out um so i don't know what to expect from issue number two and i'm gonna keep reading it because i mean how do you not how do you not read it if you're if you're me um but yeah i I don't know how i felt about this so i'm I'm looking forward to it but i will say there's another book that's coming out called strayed number one that i'm kind of excited about i actually got an advanced preview of it um i was tweeting about it maybe a couple weeks ago but uh it's one of the guys that i was working on it sent over a review copy it's pretty good i think if you're looking for like a an out of the box kind of interesting story about a psychic animal um it totally works as a book (laughs) 
Uh, but yeah, that's me. I mean, Paul, I, did you have any other thoughts? I, I listened to last week's episode and yeah. heard you talk a little bit about House of X. Tia, if you got thoughts about the Fox Pox <laughs> stuff that's happening, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I do not. Oh, no thoughts, you, you're okay. telling me you don't have Hox Pox? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking uh, about. I don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. That, no, no, it's, <laughs> no, it's, ho- it's House of X and Powers of X. Everyone's been calling it Hawks and Pox. Uh, I'm just making bad jokes. Anyways, Paul. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess very briefly, I, I had a similar reaction to you, Mike. I really loved House of X number one, um, and Powers of X or Powers of Ten, whatever. It didn't work for me. I felt like House of X was more accessible as to me as someone who hasn't run a t- read a ton of X-Men but knew enough like mm-hmm. to get into it. And then Powers of X was like, it was such a big story and there's characters I didn't recognize. And once you start talking about Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister, I, my head starts to hurt. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I will say I did read House of X number two and absolutely loved it. I yeah, was stunned here. how much I loved that issue. So I might be on board for the rest of the Jonathan, Jonathan Hickman stuff. So we'll What's see. What's weird is I think the Powers of X stuff are gonna, or Powers of 10, however we want to pronounce it, um, they're, they're gonna obviously coalesce into this big story because he's you know as he says in the book itself this is a this is a story told over two titles or something like that yeah. and it's or it's one big story and the thing that's interesting is like i totally get your issue with powers of x number one where there's just a bunch of characters and we're talking about some really weird cuts into the x-men history mm-hmm. to try to build this narrative of the I don't know, 10,000 years in the future, something like that. I don't know when things are going to end, but it's it's yeah. way beyond like measure that you can really handle in your mind. And yet it's supposed to be a story that we're digging into. So I'm going to keep reading it. And I, I mean, I think that you could probably read House of X and probably survive until the very okay. end. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to get into Powers of X at some point. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. But anyways, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we can talk about unconventional art styles. It's we got a whole lot to say about that, I think. So we'll be back in uh, just a moment. Well, this week's uh, topic for discussion was something I've been thinking about for a while, and. Um I wanted to get uh, some opinions of my co-hosts here on artists who don't use traditional art-making methods for comics or examples of comics that use something other than just pen and ink or a traditional comic book style. And that's for the big picture. And then, of course, examples of those artists. And then kind of talk about how that can be used as a narrative device or if it feels gimmicky. And just, you know, how that changes the reading experience. So I guess, obviously, the academic in me wants to make sure we frame the debate uh, and frame the terms of discussion properly before we get started. Sure. My idea was kind of make a distinction between style and medium. So obviously, every artist has their own unique style, and some are more abstract or avant-garde than others. I'm thinking of, uh, and also there's the distinction between style and medium, where it's artists who are using something other than pencil and ink, or increasingly, as is the case, a stylus on a screen to do their drawing. Um, and then examples of alternative or Unconventional mediums would be like paint, watercolor, uh, photos, collage art, stuff like that. The problem with that distinction I came uh, to realize right away was that if you're talking about differences in medium, that would mean Alex Ross, who uses paint, would be unconventional. And Bill Sienkiewicz, who used, traditionally uses like just ink, would be traditional. But I don't think anyone would use those terms to describe their respective arts. 
right? Their style. So, <laughs> yeah, and totally. in fact, to make it even more complicated, I think within comic book artists, they tend to use traditional to mean pen right. and paper, or even paint and pa- like paper, mm-hmm. basically. Whereas, um, like, as opposed to digital, as opposed to working um, with their with the screen, and so that further adds a. Uh, a reason that we would need to clarify some of these terms. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too like uh, pedantic about it, but I guess I'm just making sure we're not just focusing on someone with an unconventional style. Cause there's, I mean, there's thousands of examples of that. So maybe kind of talking about styles that are very uh, different reading experiences than the quote unquote traditional comic book styles. Yeah. This is a great topic to come back to guys. What the <laughs> fuck? Um. So <laughs> what strikes me as uh, what strikes me as useful about this is that it forces us to think about what a traditional comic book art style does for the the ability to tell the story in that medium i mean the thing that that i kind of came to when i was thinking about this is you know looking at the only person i can really think of is like old jack kirby comics or like old pulp comics Mm -hmm. where there's like a distinct style that a lot of people drew from or like there was some book out there that said here's how you draw comic book anatomy and so like all the men kind of shaped a certain way and all the women are shaped a certain way and you know you get like some interesting variants on that but um like going beyond that then i start to think about different styles and of course we're talking about different mediums here so that's like another layer to this Mm -hmm. um but those i think the base level things to get to what tia was saying you know what are the, what those do is they kind of set a standard for like how humanoids are shaped in comics so you kind of have a baseline um and i think like in the comics culture that we've built here in the you know united states some of those comics are iconic like the original action comics you know that superman shape as a person compared to um you know your everyday everyday average joe like those two things are very mm-hmm. different and you can tell which one is the superhero which one is just the regular person um and I think, like, for me, that at least that's where I, I draw the baseline. And, like, what I think that does is it, it just gives you that very specific distinction. Oh, totally. And this goes back, I mean, like, mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, ancient Egyptian art, like, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you see... This isn't original. No, yeah, I no, get it's not. It's this, or, like, ancient Greek art, it's like, you know, there are there are visual cues that they give you to say, like, this person is different from this person, and this is the good guy, and this is the king. So, like... I mean, the point, I think the overarching point here is that in order for an unconventional art style to mean something, there first needs to be a conventional art style that means mm-hmm. something. And uh, in comics, that's been pretty well established. Yeah, yeah. So thanks, Mike, for bringing up Jack Kirby right off the bat so I can riff on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had to yeah. figure we were going to so, talk about I mean, him I think at some point. Today. He's a very interesting example because his art is very idiosyncratic, as influential as it is. Like, it's a defining style. You know it when you see it. And people have been influenced by it. And his shorthand for it, his anatomy is very strange. If you actually look at the way he draws people, it's not normal anatomy, right? But that became a shorthand for presenting powerful characters was that. And the way he would draw cosmic energy and these bizarre concepts, that became baked into most superhero comics ever since. But, you know, which is interesting because it is so idiosyncratic on its own. It still looks strange and different, even though kind of everyone borrowed from it. I wanted to bring up Jack Kirby in this discussion because 
he was also someone who did experiment with different medium as well. Like we think of him as being the traditional superhero artist, but there are examples of him using photo collage to indicate something that he was beyond imagination or something he couldn't draw. If that makes sense. Where it's the the example that comes immediately to mind is issue sixty one of the Fantastic Four. It's the first time Reed Richards goes into the negative zone, and in order to portray an alternate universe or some strange dimension that you know, it was different from the world the Fantastic Four lived in. Jack Kirby made this beautiful sort of collage that was these different shapes and geometrical, um, you know, designs that Reed Richards is going into. And it obviously the printing technology in 1964, whatever, when the issue came out, wasn't able to capture it as beautifully as the original artwork is. But you get the sense of it is something different. It's it's not the New York where the Fantastic Four live. It's another dimension. And that shorthand, I think, is something Kirby used a lot, using photo collage to indicate something otherworldly. And I think that in, only enhanced the reading experience and the idea he was trying to get across. Yeah, the great thing about photo collage is that, you know, it takes something that is hyper-realistic or seemingly a, a window onto a world and then mm-hmm. rearranges it in a way to make it unfamiliar, yeah. So yeah. it really does convey what Reed Richards is experiencing in this story. And it's a really uh, thoughtful use of medium as storytelling. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the, the main example. Obviously, I wanted to talk about Jack Kirby, but I mean, the main <laughs> example that, that spurred this idea in my head was like, that is a really inventive and I think a very early example of using medium to tell a different story. And it's from the guy who's quote unquote, the, the most traditional superhero artist. So thinking about how that affects the reading experience is right there in Kirby's man wind up and he's doing it. And I think, you know, that's where this, this idea spun out of. So I think we can think of other examples of someone using media to convey a narrative function in that sense. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the things that came to mind when we first started talking about this was Dave McKean's covers for Sandman. You know, those were like big right. physical yeah. sets that he would build and then take photos of. And I mean, yes, they're just covers, but they conveyed a lot of information in just the little rectangle that you would get for the cover. I mean, there's overall themes of death and sleep and all that stuff. I mean, I, I am not a Sandman expert, but I do recall seeing like a little either an article or maybe I saw like a small video about him making one of the covers. And it's insane saying the amount of work that he put in to just take that photo and I think someone did that very recently where they they had like a a comic book cover that had like a physical set that they had scanned in or taken a photo of and then they put comic books beneath it like in the center uh man it is escaping me what that is but still uh Dave McKean's stuff is it's incredible work like it's it's a different way to look at how to make a comic book cover because there's no drawing in there it's all just a physical set. And I think maybe in some cases they did do some drawing on top of the photo, but nonetheless, mm-hmm. like the majority of that cover is just made out of photograph material. And that's, that's such a cool thing to me. I never would have in my life even known that had I not seen this thing or this documentary about it. Um, it's a very cool idea. And of course, you know, I, when you say Dave McKean, I mean, they think of, you know, Batman Arkham Asylum, the book he did with Graham Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, in 89 and that's it's not there are examples of him using mixed media in it but it's predominantly just painted but it doesn't look like a comic book at all like there's only that's the only artwork that would fit that story and it's so just evocative and abstract and dreamlike at times it's all just painted and it looks very paint on the page you can kind of see the the physicality of the paint and the canvas on the way the book is printed and I love the idea that this was the book that came out right after their um 
uh, Tim Burton's Batman. So all these people's like, oh, I don't read a Batman comic. Oh, here's a new one. And if they get Grant Morrison, Dave McKeon, <laughs> Batman comic, that must have been such a mind fuck. I love that. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, that book is nightmarish to read because of that that artwork. Like, it is so different from what you expect in a comic book, specifically a Batman comic. It, there's, it evokes such strong reactions, both physical and emotional, I think. That's, that's the only way that story could work, was it that artwork. There was also that Wicked and Divine variant that Ollie Moss did. I think it was issue 22, where it's like a a 3D rendering of a of a sculpture bust of Lucifer. Oh man. Oh, I've, I've seen this. I should say, I, I'm pretty sure you showed this to me. Um, yeah, that's a <laughs> sick cover. I'm trying to find a picture of it right now as I'm, as I'm talking, but, um, yeah, what a, what a wild thing. Well, and I think that it's so perfect for th- that story in particular, because, um, I don't know. I just feel like it's, uh, when you think of, of sculpture busts and this one in particular, I pulled just pulled up an image of it. You know, it's like kind of it looks like a little like it's been a little bit damaged. Like it has a little bit of um mm-hmm. of, of history to it. Mm-hmm. It you know it, and I think that that really uh, speaks to a lot of the themes in the Wicked and the Divine. Um, you know, like the mythology and and the the kind of tension and and so yeah, I. I I don't know. I've never seen a cover like that before. And it's such it's such a unique image. I I really almost wish that it were real. Like, mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. They sh- you know what I mean? Like they should make best of it. But um, God, yeah, I, I, I see, Mike, that you mentioned in, in web comics, there's some sometimes some like uh, model m- digital modeling that happens. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I don't hate it but i can tell that it's happening in the comics when creators want to you know use a big space like say they want to do like an overhead shot of you know like a city like they don't want to draw all of that and in fact some of these creators are like well i'm actually going to explore some of these buildings so i actually want the full render so in order to keep this consistency they'll actually have rendered models that they use for buildings and for like statues and stuff like that that are maybe too hard to draw or they want to get really super detailed with the physicality of it um, so to see like the, it's kind of like watching the Mary, the old uh, bed knobs and broomsticks movie, or maybe Mary Pop- Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. where you've got like in mm-hmm. real life oh, things yeah, interacting yeah. with cartoons. And I mean, in right. a lot of the web comics that um, I'm thinking of, you know, the the models themselves are stylized to kind of match the art, but there's this clear distinction, like one thing's rendered using this thing and the other thing is obviously a drawing. Um, so to see them interact is kind of like a mixing of two worlds. Uh, but yeah, I really I really like it because it, it keeps consistency for me in my brain as I'm like reading the story. So when you see all angles of a building, it's always the same because they're using the same model. They don't have to draw it every single time. Um, and I, I really like that because it's it's just i think it must be easier for them and again it's it's consistency for me the reader well i mean it's interesting you bring up example of covers because i think covers are clearly designed to be eye-catching so something that is striking and unique and different obviously is 
appealing to a reader to kind of try that out, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, I think that's an, a cover is a space where it allows that sort of experimentation. It always is kind of disappointing when you have a, such a visually striking cover and you open it up and the art inside is different. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Oh God, yeah. that happens to me every time Kevin Wada does a cover and I'm just like, <laughs> right. you know, I feel bad, like artists, I love you all, but like Kevin Wada and then you, and then it's not Kevin yeah. Wada anymore and you're just I sad. I this cover. I became very thirsty <laughs> and then I opened it up yeah. and it wasn't that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, bless him. You know, and um going back to interiors if we can for a moment. Um you know, there are some artists who like just straight up paint with paint yeah. and they're, you know, on paper interiors and um use layouts and and uh their their particular style to really like play with the storytelling and the medium and the form the formal aspects of it. Um, I know that I've mentioned before on the show that um, if you look really closely at some of Marco Rudy's pages in The Winter Soldier, you can actually see the three dimensionality and the texture of the paint. That, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am constantly like impressed by his work. I I just I feel like I've said it a million times on the show, but oh my goodness, his work is is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um he, there are also pages where the layout of the panels um to use the term loosely, uh the shape of them actually will sort of convey something in the story. Um and I know I've mentioned this before, but there's a fight scene with Punisher no, not Punisher. I'm sorry. My my brain is just like, you know, it's it's coming along. Uh sorry. Winter Soldier and um Oh my god, Rumlow. Why why is his name escaping me? Is Help it Crossbones? Me, oh, Crossbones. They, yeah. Thank you. I'm like like it was in my head and I'm like skull. There's yeah, a yeah. skull. Wait, no. It's not gotcha. Punisher. I got gotcha. oh you. <laughs> Oh my god, you guys, help me. Um, I told you I don't haven't had enough time in bed yet after Comic Con. Okay. Um but he's fight he is fighting crossbones and like depending on who has the upper hand in the fight, the layout of the panels is either like in the shape of a star or in the shape of, of a skull and crossbones. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how is he able yeah. to do that with his brain? Can we just <laughs> 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 well, you know, I didn't put it in the notes here, uh, but I mean, that I think there's a whole discussion to be had about the use of layouts as a narrative function and even style as a narrative function, which I guess kind yeah. of is where we're having here. And J.H. Williams III is the first person that, I, that comes to mind for me because there are examples of his Batman work or when he was doing Batwoman with Greg Rucka, mm-hmm. there's the origin story where there would be panels that were clearly drawn to mimic the style of Dave Mazzuccelli. In Batman Year One, and it's like, okay, that's clearly a flashback, and he's using that style to indicate that, and it's so different from his normal style, you know. But somehow it for, works seamlessly with his more conventional style that he was that he does when he's doing the present day stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just love the idea that he's just using different styles to indicate moments in time in narrative uh, in a narrative way. And obviously the page layouts. There's some beautiful page layouts where he just it's a giant bat symbol on a double page spread, and each one's broken up to like ten panels to tell a story. It's mind blowing stuff, and it's. It's stuff that it makes you stop your reading experience to kind of take it all in. And like I don't think that's interrupting the my experience of the comic. It just makes me appreciate the work that goes into it even more. Yeah. You know, it's not distracting, but I can still spend ten minutes just looking over a double page spread and just taking it all in. Yeah. 
Well, it's almost like a like punctuation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, or like there's the story that's being told and then punctuation kind of inflects in the phrasing of it. Right. And I think that's what a lot of what we're talking about is doing for the story. Uh, you know, like you could also talk about, you know, kind of swinging back around to when we were discussing Jack Kirby's like unique anatomical style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mannerism in anatomy is really prevalent in comic books and a really effective storytelling tool. Like, you know, you can clown on Rob Liefeld all you want, but he has a really distinct manner of style mm-hmm. that it's very articulate for the time and place that it comes from and and the role of those characters mm-hmm. in that cultural zeitgeist of that moment. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've gone back and looked at some of that stuff. I was I wasn't even a big fan when it was coming out because I mean that was that was right the prime of me starting to get into comics is when he was going and starting Image, right? And you know, like, and I going and at the time it wasn't my cup of tea, um, and going it still really isn't. But going back and looking at those old issues of uh, you know, whatever he was doing, like um, young, yeah, yeah, young blood or whatever, they're clear comics that are not meant to be read in the traditional way like they're meant to be looked at and like that's obvious right. that's what he's doing and I, I really appreciate that and like you're saying it's such a distinct you know style that it is all about how many cross hatchings you can make it's all about mannerism and you know dy- dynamism yeah absolutely like Chad Moore I think is another artist who has mm-hmm. a really distinct and and you know what look like uh, I love Chad oh, Moore I, mean, I was just gonna say like I do not yeah. care for that style mm. personally oh okay but I have a lot of respect for the consistency and the the like sort of aesthetic imperative that he's exploring with that style even if i don't respond to it mm-hmm. in the same way that i i could like look at christian ward or stephanie hans or ray fox's work all day long you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's just not my it's not my style but i still have a lot of respect for the like sort of consistent way that it, it I, it's the intellectual honesty of what he's doing i have a lot of respect for yeah, the the thing that sells me on Trad Moore is his ability to just like Rob Liefeld. I think you guys you kind of nailed it on the head. Where there is so much power and action and dynamicism um, in or dynamism, whatever you want to call it, in his his work. Like you can tell, like the the pages almost feel like the art is going to mm-hmm. come off of them because there's so much action and momentum in everything that he draws. Um, even characters standing still feel like like they're unbelievably big and un- like cartoonishly large or cartoonishly small um but they all feel like they have a lot of action ready to like go within them mm-hmm. and i mean that's that's what draws me to his work is like i i just want to see big big buff people <laughs> fight each other and that's cool yeah and you know i think that if you look at other visual uh media at any given time like if you look at at what was happening in say for example cinema which i'm not i don't love making direct mm-hmm. comparisons but as like a cousin as cousins basically comic yeah. comic books and cinema like you know the the kind of action that you expect to see in a in a movie from the 60s like it the it's kind of a on the same level as the sort of action that you see in comic books right and mm-hmm. so it makes sense that um, the style of art to convey action in comic books would ha- be a little more high octane when you start to get into, you know, filmmaking that has a lot more technology at its disposal to make action happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Paul, let me ask you this. When was the craziest sure. time in wrestling for fighting? Mm. Because I basically think you could map that to when the craziest time for action in comics was. That's that's my thought. <laughs> well, well, no, I think that that might not be a comparison I could make because I think, um, I don't know if that, it, the style has evolved and changed over time, mm -hmm. but it's still just two people fighting. You know what I mean? I yeah. think yeah. the difference here is I, I think like we're talking about with Jack Kirby or, uh, you know, trying to use art to present something beyond understanding i think that's what's really interesting too is like how do you portray cosmic energy you know how do you portray alternate reality right. or ultimate dimensions you know that kind of stuff and obviously like thanks to modern technology movies have been able to do that i think it's in a weird way uh maybe um the opposite of you know fighting styles in movies or action in movies where now movies are able to do what comics have always been able to do. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Where it's like guys like Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko were doing stuff that's so mind blowing on the page. It was, they had no limits where now it's like movies are finally being able to catch up and do that. You know, you couldn't have made a Dr. Strange movie until you could do this type of digital, you know, animation to make it look like a Steve Ditko page. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a weird inverse. I think at that point where it's like now comics are influencing film in a, in maybe a, a, a different way than they, the relationship had worked in the past. Yeah. I mean, I, I had some other notes on, on like painting, um, <laughs> that I kind of, that one other artist that really comes to mind for me is Jill Thompson. Um, because her use of paint is really interesting and in that she always uses a lot of it to make her like colors really, really pop. Like yeah. I was watching a video that I'll put in the show notes of her like drawing a, a Wonder Woman. And the first thing that she does is she doesn't just use a canvas. She paints the canvas with a pure white to start because I don't think she likes the color of just plain canvas. And so in order to make the like reds and the blues and the browns of Wonder Woman kind of pop, she intentionally adds a lot of white to the as like a base layer. Um, and so as you watch the video, as she draws more and more of this Wonder Woman like portrait, you see all of those super bright colors come out. And I think if you look at her Wonder Woman, the true Amazon book, that whole book is is painted that way. Where she, I think she intentionally brightened everything in order to add just these vibrant colors. That's not like neon colors, but just vibrant solid reds and yellows and blues and greens um, to show like the the really bright colors of... Uh, what, where do they live? Themis, yeah, that's how like you said it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the island, I think. Um so yeah, it's it's interesting to see the way that she does that. I'm, I've always liked her style as an artist. Like she does a really, she has a very unique way of drawing things. Like her, um, her comic that's about a witch, and I can't remember what it's called. You know, like that has a very distinct mm -hmm. style in itself. But I think that the way she creates her comics is also very interesting because I, I, unlike a lot of people, like Matt Kent was someone else that I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, just very briefly because like the way that him that he and his wife Charlene Kent, you know, they do work together um the, it's like a mix of pens and pencils and charcoal as well as watercolor and you can see like when they scan in their pages like tyler jenkins is very similar which is why i think matt kent works really close with him where you can see like the bleed through like you can see where the yeah. paint was like there was too much water and it sucked through the page but like you use that to be part of the narrative narrative of yeah. of the page um which i think is really interesting to take those maybe unintentional or maybe intentional defects of the page and use them in an interesting way because paint is very very different than pencils <laughs> yeah. and inks uh and I, i'm always curious about how they get those like scanned in do they scan them in do they take photos but um I think they scan <laughs> them okay okay and i like i really like hope that people understand that 
just the time that it takes to do that because like you know these ha- these happy accidents often can be incorporated into the artwork but some but uh, like when you're working with digital you I feel like there's always that undo yeah, you yeah. know but <laughs> yeah, like yeah. if you if you take it a step too far when you're working uh in a physical medium you either have to roll with it or you have to scrap it you know yeah, yeah. there's something I really enjoy about seeing watercolors used as a coloring medium in comics you know i think yep. i think of lucy mm-hmm. nicely i think of sarah glidden um you know those are mm-hmm. examples of people who are using a sort of it's the colors aren't as bright or vibrant you know as a normal paint would be but so it gives the 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 work a sort of tone to it and then also the sort of you can again see the sort of physicality of the 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 water seeping into the page it gives the colors an almost a sort of weight even though they're not as vibrant you know does that make sense I mean, oh, I yeah. think it yeah. can be, and this—I mean, this really speaks to um, to the artist and their mastery of that medium, because you know it is really difficult to keep watercolors vibrant because they just muddy yeah. together when you when you aren't manipulating them um, in to keep them from doing mm-hmm. that. So mm-hmm. you know, and also like, and look, I don't. I think that artists should always use every tool of, at their disposal. And there is nothing wrong with scanning your watercolor into Photoshop and then brightening stuff right. you want brightened. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. what I think Colleen Coover is someone that kind of does that because she uses watercolors in backgrounds mm-hmm. and then like the main figures are very bright, bright and vibrant. So she's probably using two different coloring techniques there to kind of make that distinction. Yeah, do whatever you need to do to tell your tell your story yeah. with your art. And also, on the other hand, I mean, coloring with crayons is something I think Tom Scioli does. Uh, you see it more in his sort of web comics he does on his blog. But that guy experiments with different medium and coloring techniques uh, in a, a maddening way. Like, I just love the way that you can kind of tell it is kind of just a mad scientist, kind of like, how do I create this? And I can use crayons. And there are certain pages he does where you can see he's erased the original drawing and just drawn over it and stuff. So the physicality of his pages. And that's someone, too, that I think he took. I I think it's maybe an interesting comparison, but again, maybe for another show. Uh, Rob Liefeld clearly loves Jack Kirby and went one way. Tom Sully clearly loves Jack Kirby just as much and went a very different direction. You know what I mean? Like, well, their styles are so unique really and different. Yeah. There's a, the same a, base a elements to them. For being really careful about how you use the word influence, because it's less about Jack Kirby acting on right. these artists, and I think it's more about these artists acting on Jack Kirby's art. You know what I mean? Like, it's a lot more of an active thing that. Sure. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. can only happen by you bringing something to the table. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good distinction to make. The idea of that, mm-hmm. them picking out the elements that work for them right, and incorporating exactly. them to their style and, versus and just, I'm going to try to copy the, this, you know, and do something different with it. Yeah. Shifts the onus of the interaction onto the person who's actually using what Kirby's put down. Whereas, like, you know... Kirby made his art in his way and he doesn't really have anything to do with what Rob Liefeld does with it. And so to say that he's influencing Rob Liefeld, for example, I feel like, mm-hmm. and and look like this is a, this is a debate that happens in art history all the time. Like, how do you talk about this? And, and I think that a lot of people are starting to move away from mm-hmm. using the word influence in this way, because it just, uh, it, it almost 
it, it points the energy in the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah. That's a very interesting debate. And I, I think that's one that maybe should happen on another episode at some point. Cause that's it. Yeah. A that would one. be a fun yeah. one. Um, I guess very briefly, I want to mention another artist who I, I was hesitant to mention cause I literally have no idea how they make their artwork. I don't know what it is, but Whatever Fraser Irving does, however he makes comics, is that's got to be the most unique style going right now, or one of them, because that's... How does he do that? It's part digital. I think he's doing some traditional pen and ink stuff. It is all digital. He's doing an incredible amount of manipulation with color, saturation, and shading. Um, his books look like no other books, and it, it, it's always a treat. Well, Christian Ward's, Christian Ward is in that yeah. same boat, though. I don't know how the hell that's he true. does what he does. Oh, he yeah. is incredible. I mean, but I mean, I know Fraser Irving has done some drawings, like he or he does like mm-hmm. sketches and stuff at conventions, and so like I think you're right. It's like more of a, it's like a physical thing that gets scanned in and then manipulated <laughs> yeah. to all hell. Um, like, but Christian Ward's got to mm-hmm. be the same thing, right? He's drawing something. He's using his hands to draw something. It's not all computer generated stuff, right? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but even then, like, you're, there's there's still a stylus involved. There's still choices being made physically, you know, yeah, to manipulate yeah. on the screen. So I think there's a there's a it's going away. But traditionally, there's always been a sort of uh, prejudice against digital artwork in that sense, where it's it's not a there's not a physical aspect to it, but there obviously is. You know, what I mean. It, Obviously, I think Christian Ward works mostly digital. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Everyone should follow him on social media because his dog Thor is very cute. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good enough reason for me to follow him. I'm totally that's, on board for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the on the very opposite end of the spectrum, very quickly, I do want to mention that um, M. L. Ferris, who did my favorite thing is monsters, oh, of recently. Course, yeah. yeah, that's a good one. It, I mean, it is traditionally just pen and ink but it's like ballpoint pens on like notebook paper and it's say, it, it, you, you know. can call it traditional but it's not man it is <laughs> no exactly it is yeah. an insane amount of time spent on a fucking comic book it blows my mind and just some, something about that uh, I've, it's, it's come up a few times in this discussion but for me i really like the idea of seeing the sort of physical manipulation of something like seeing just the amount of cross hatching and you can almost like see the indentation on the page itself of her pressing down with the ballpoint pen to get mm-hmm. the texture on the character and to get the textures on the on the colors that she's doing. So I really, really enjoy that. That's something that obviously that's the distinction between that and doing a digital artwork where it's I still recognize the time involved in a digital artwork, but it's the physicality of it's not as as evident, right? Hmm, that's really interesting. We should jot yeah. that down for later, too. <laughs> yeah. Look at this. We're coming up with new ideas as we go. It's great. Oh, man. I'm going to have to start doing homework for this show, aren't I? <laughs> uh, <laughs> more than usual, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah that Emil Ferris book is Oof. is a most, monster, um, and that's a bad pun, but... Yeah. Um, I have never, I haven't finished it. I think I've tried to read it like four times and gotten about halfway through. It's, um, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, it's a big it's a book. But, um, it's not a chore. It's an enjoyable book, but yeah, it is a, it's a time investment. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think like the thing that always keeps me coming back is just the sheer amount of comic in the actual book. <laughs> like every page is just maximized to the mm-hmm. point where there are paragraphs of text next to full-blown two page spreads of you know of imagery yeah. um it's it's such a it's such a impressive tome 
that you can sit down and read. Like if you pick one of those books up physically, it's a massive thing. <laughs> um, and I think the interesting part about it, just to not to keep harping on this thing, is that um, it's done on lined paper, mm-hmm. and it's clearly a lined paper. Like it's something you could pick up at the store where you would, you know, with three rings punch uh, punched into it um, and scanned in. And it's it's a wonderful thing uh, to see that like they didn't even try to erase any of that stuff. They're just just kept it in there. And I think that's what makes the like you said, Paul, the physicality of it even more real. Yeah, and so maybe to kind of tie the conversation together here with a nice little bow is that I think that that art style and those artistic choices really fundamentally change the way you read that book. It's like you're reading someone's diary, right? And it does, like you said, Mike, there are large portions of the book that are just pages of text, handwritten text. And sometimes those can be kind of, you know, that I feel that is more difficult to read than the actual imagery itself. That makes sense? Oh, yeah. So her, her art style is so evocative and you know, it's impressive. So sometimes when you're, we're bogged down by text, like, boy, I just kind of want to just look at the pictures. So something about these unconventional art styles really draw your eye and make a different reading experience than, you know, the quote-unquote traditional stuff. Definitely. Well, I don't know. Do you guys have any other, any final thoughts, any other artists we want to talk about before we wrap this up? I think we're good. Okay, good. I think we've got like 10 more episodes that are coming just out of this one. So um, I'll have to listen back and jot all those down. <laughs> but this is a really cool discussion. I, I appreciate, Paul, you bringing this bringing this yeah. up for, for the episode this week. Um, because, man, yeah, I think this is something that we we talk about in little bits and pieces um, in other episodes. But to actually focus on it this week has been great. Yeah, and obviously we're leaving out a ton of names and a ton of style. So if the listeners have anything they want to pitch our way or remind us about, please let us know. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, well, cool. I guess let's let's get ourselves out of here. You can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Tia at Portrait of Madam X. You can follow Paul at Oh Hi Polly, and you can follow me at Mike Rappin. And you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, where I try to post some semi regular stuff there. Um, we try, we try. Uh, you can also subscribe and uh, help support the show as a Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB Podcast. The show wouldn't exist without this support. It really does help us out a lot. And we'll reward you for supporting us. We're giving you access to exclusive audio and articles. We've got essays up there. You get early access to top of the pile posts and more. So check that out. Our Goodread Groups is a lovely community of comic book friends who uh, read comics and post about them. And we have weekly threads over there. This week's thread is the, about our book of the month pick, Heathen Volume 1. So you can check that out at ircbpodcast.com goodreads. IRCBpodcast.com is where you can find all of our stuff, the show, our pronunciation guide, merch, uh, all sorts of stuff. And please remember to rate and review the show. We'll read your review on an episode of the show, perhaps. We have over 200 episodes. We should have 200 reviews. So uh, let us know what you think. You could also email the show with what you've been thinking. Tell us what you're reading. Send us recipes, cat pictures, corrections, you know, anything you want. Um, IRCBpodcast at gmail.com. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. They have a new album coming out, so make sure you go check that out at infinityshred.com. Xander is a high wizard of the grandest scale, a true angel descended upon us from the heavens. He also edits the show. He's a fantastic dude. I want to say thank you to Paul and Tia for being on this episode. This is a really fun episode. It's a great episode to come back to. Uh, I want to say thank you to the listeners and thank you to the people on our Discord. If you're not on our Discord, you can check that out. It's, it's available. Go to our site. There's a link you can join. It's completely publicly available to everybody. So uh, until next time, comics are good and so are you.